welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. So welcome to another episode of Ivy League Murders. Welcome. This episode is called A Deadly Resentment. So I am actually going to start this episode with a quote from Shakespeare. Love me or hate me, both are in my favor. If you love me, I will always be in your heart. If you hate me, I will always be in your mind. So it was October 5th, 2004. A Harvard-educated doctor, Brian Stidham, was found brutally slain in his business complex in Tucson, Arizona. The murder initially looked like a carjacking gone very wrong. As the authorities dug deeper, they found a twisting tale of resentment and jealousy. This week, we are honored to talk to A.J. Flick. Welcome, A.J. Welcome. Thank Uh, you so much. A.J. Flick is the author of a book about the same subject called Toxic Rage. A.J., introduce yourself to the audience and talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this case. Well, basically, I had a very long career in journalism. I was one of those weirdos. I always knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer from an early, early age. After that, I decided I wanted to become a reporter. So I did that. (laughs) I was on the school newspaper staffs in junior high and high school, and I worked at a TV radio station at the news station when I was in high school, went to the University of Arizona, studied journalism, and since really the age of 17, I was a reporter. In the last few years, it's been a little challenging because the last newspaper I worked for died. And so I've been doing other things, but I identify as a journalist. And You're based in Tucson. Yes. Correct. And so I actually tortured myself yesterday by looking at the weather in Tucson. We have gotten a foot of snow here in Boston. (laughs) So I understand that you guys dipped precipitously down to 72 degrees yesterday. So I just wanted to make sure that you're okay. You have to wear a light jacket. What's uh, the... uh... Right. Yes, I've got the heat blasting and snuggly. We have the fireplace on, actually. It's terribly cold. 
it actually went down to 50 and I just didn't know what to do. Oh my, I, I've got a little bit of a weather resentment going right now, I, just so you know, you know. And I understand from your book, too, that this was October 5th, 2004, this murder took place, and that you were just basically about a mile away from the scene. This is in your backyard. Can you kind of lay out what happened that night? Yes, I do have a solid alibi, so... <laughs> Uh, that day, at that time, I did a lot of things. This is the old Tucson Citizen afternoon newspaper. Back in the days when some towns had two, I was covering courts. And so I'd spent the morning at the courthouse, digging up records, doing research, which I love. And on my way back to work, I got into an accident. Someone pulled out in front of me and I couldn't stop. And there was an accident. And it was kind of funny because the police station was just down the road and half the people who responded, I knew. <laughs> so that evening, you know, all my friends found out about it and they said, okay, let's meet up at our favorite sports bar. You know, we'll commiserate with you and we want to see pictures, what happened to your car. So we did. And on the way home, when I was being driven home, there were some very bright lights up the street and I knew about where the area was, but... This being Tucson, if familiar at all with Tucson, half the time, half of our roads are under construction. So I just thought maybe it was night construction on the road and woke up the next morning and heard about this murder that happened where I was looking the last night. And at that point, it was not yet my story because I was on the court's beat. And until someone is arrested, it's the cop beat reporter who covers it. But of course... Everyone knew from the start it was going to be a big, big story. So I, like everybody else in town, was interested in every bit of information about it was a doctor who was killed. Doctors don't just get killed. And it was in his own parking lot at his medical office. And it was a brutal stabbing death. And, and these things just don't usually happen. So I, I paid a lot of attention and I talked a lot to the cop beat reporter. And then and once an arrest was made, then it became my story. Interesting. And so can you tell us a little bit about the victim, Brian Stedham? We're Ivy League murders. I understand that he went to Harvard Medical School and he was an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon, essentially. Yes. He specialized in pediatrics. So very well trained, very well educated. He's originally from East Texas. And he also was very ambitious when he was young, and he wanted to be a doctor, and so he went into it. And he actually became, even at a young age as a doctor, an expert, a very skilled surgeon. And he just loved children. So he was on his way up in the world, and he was in Texas, and he saw an ad for a children's ophthalmologist in Tucson, Arizona. And it was an eye surgeon, fellow ophthalmologist named Brad Schwartz, who had placed the ad because Brad Schwartz wanted to find someone to do the pediatric patients and basically give all of the pediatric patients to the new guy while he focused on his patients. And also he wanted to branch out. He was already making millions of dollars, but he wanted to branch out into maybe some cosmetic procedures to make even more money. Brian came to Tucson to interview and fell in love with Tucson. He liked to hike 
And we have hey, a- AJ, you're really, you know, working this, this <laughs> geographical resentment here. Okay. I mean, all right, fine. And he's married at this point, right? He's married. He's married. He might have had his oldest child when he came here, but his youngest child I know was born here. So he was starting his own family and a really nice guy. I mean, people loved him. I got to know one of his good, good friends who's a musician in a country band, and he was just incredibly well-liked and very down-to-earth. And as I said, he just he just loved the idea of coming to Tucson. And he told his wife, this is it. We're going to die here. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize how <laughs> prophetic mm-hmm. that would be. He starts working with shorts. Yes. Shorts. And as popular as Bryanston very quickly became, Tucson is, well, we've got a million people in the metropolitan area, but it's really not a huge, huge town. We like to think of ourselves as a small town. The medical community is really tight. Right. And everybody instantly liked Brian. And Brad Schwartz, though, was not well-liked. Very aggressive. He's from New York. And sometimes <laughs> New Yorkers have been known to be a little aggressive. No. I know. I married one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so he rubbed people the wrong way the minute he came to town. But people recognized that he was very, he himself, Brad Schwartz, was one of the experts in a particular branch of ophthalmology that I can't pronounce. But he was one of the experts in the country at doing that. A lot of doctors immediately referred their patients to Brad and Brian They got along, but they were two different people. Brad Schwartz liked to wear a shirt and tie and be a medical professional here in the room and kind of formal. And Brian liked to wear scrubs. He liked to get colorful scrubs because he had pediatric patients. He wanted to put them at ease. And sometimes Brad would get upset at Brian for looking too casual, but they worked as a team. So very well and we're making lots of money and getting lots of patients while they were working together when you say he's a different person he was a man of many vices shall we say yes (laughs) (laughs) women women one of them (laughs) he had already by the time brian came to town uh, brad was divorced from his wife and he dated a lot and it didn't seem to stop him when he was married that he dated. So he had a lot of women for some reason, just had this kind of magnetism, magnetism, however you say that. He was a magnet for chicks. <laughs> and so he was at the time that Brian came to town, he was dating and soon became engaged to a woman, Lourdes Lopez, who at the time was a prosecutor at the Pima County Attorney's Office. And they had a very kind of passionate good and bad. That was the affair that led to the end of Brad Schwartz's marriage. So he had a very active dating life and lifestyle. And the other big vice in his life was Vicodin. Right. He did suffer from chronic pain, though, right? He had a number of medical issues that, from my understanding in your book, he legitimately got prescribed pain medication. And then what happened? He got addicted to it. He was self-medicating and he wasn't, you know, perhaps like me, you know, if I, if I had surgery, I'd get like maybe five Vicodin and no other refills. So, but he was a doctor. He decided to, with his office manager and Lourdes Lopez, write them prescriptions for a couple hundred Vicodin pills. They'd take some of the pills. Lourdes was famous and quoted as saying, always handy to have Vicodin around the house. The quote my friend always said was, you never know how much pain you're in until you start taking painkillers, you know, so. Yeah, 
he was self-medicating and over-prescribing for himself and getting his office manager, fiance, in on it. And the problem being that it's going to catch up with you. And so Vicodin is one of the highly regulated drugs and the DEA found out. And so one day Brian was at the office and there was a drug bust by the DEA and it frightened Brian. He had no idea that Brad was even taking the Vicodin, much less over-prescribing it for himself and giving it away to people who helped him. It shook Brian a lot. And what happened was Brad and Lourdes were arrested and charged in federal court and the office manager as well. And the result being that Lourdes lost her job at the prosecutor's office and Brad lost his medical license. And there were certain steps that he had to take. They weren't imprisoned or anything. He had to take certain steps to get his medical license back so he could practice again. And that included being sent to rehab. And he started in Chicago. There's a clinic in Chicago that specializes in health professionals who become addicted. Ironically, by this time, Brad was no longer taking Vicodin because he had gotten surgery. He had a shoulder injury and he had gotten surgery for that. So he was no longer in pain and no longer self-medicating, but it didn't matter. He had to go through this. And so he left town. He put his parents in charge of managing the office and trusted Brian to keep the practice going. After some time, while Brad was still in Chicago, his parents called and said, you know what? Brian's got new business cards made up. He's leaving the practice. He's taking the patients and and some of the staff. And that just enraged Brad. And over the phone, he right then and there fired Brian and said, just leave. Don't take anything. Just leave. You're fired. It was that betrayal, apparently, that just festered in Brad Schwartz. And he came back to Tucson. He had to do some rehab things here in Tucson. But again, he was taking the steps that he needed. He went to counseling to start to get his medical license back. In the meantime, Brian opened his own practice. And then Brad, of course, his old practice got shut down and he created a new one across town. So they both started their own practices But they really weren't competing with each other because Brian was taking the pediatric patients anyway. So again, Brad focused on adults and also his specialty and aesthetics, some cosmetic procedures and things like that to make money. It seemed like on the outside that things were going well, their business had broken up. That happens. Practices break up all the time. But when there started to be rumors going around town, And that Brad Schwartz was so upset still, even two years later, that he was telling people he was going to have Brian killed. People didn't take him seriously, correct? You know, Lourdes heard him say that. It seemed like he almost was pulling people off the street and saying, hey, you know how I can hire a hitman at the drug clinic where he had to get his urine tested for the drug scan? And yeah, but nobody, nobody thought it would happen. I mean, even Brian heard about it and he was talking to a friend, a fellow physician who knew both of them. And he said, you know, I've heard Brad so mad at me still that he wants to kill me. And the other physician said, 
yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Look at him. He's not going to kill you. I often get so mad at my partners. I, my, oh, I'm so mad I could kill him, but I'm not going to kill him. So nobody ever thought that anything would come of that, except for eventually Brad might get over it. But Brad also talked to people about planting child pornography. He really wanted to kind of like ruin Brian's practice. Even to the point where I had a photo of his own child with no clothes on and said, plant this in Brian's office. Unbelievable. And no, no, nobody was going to do that. Or maybe hammer his hands so he can't be a surgeon anymore. And by this time, Brad and Lourdes had broken up, so he was seeing other women, and they would hear these same things too. But he also really liked The Sopranos, and he was an (laughs) avid fan of The Sopranos, as, hey, I was too. (laughs) Everybody thought it's just this fantasy of his. He's just like this. He thinks he can be Tony Soprano and order a hit. And so, so yeah, nobody took it seriously. Nobody took it seriously. You don't think Lourdes took it seriously? Uh, she was worried for his anger problems. Mm-hmm. That's a big reason why they broke up. But it wasn't anything in her head while he said it, after he said it, that made her think, you know, she did ask a fellow lawyer, he said this, this is kind of disturbing. And her friend said, yeah, but it's not going to happen. Come on, people don't just do that. So it wasn't anything that was a big concern on top of all the other concerns that they had with their relationship. What's interesting about this case is that Lourdes is a prosecutor. She is prosecuting people in court. She knows the law, but it seems like Brad had a certain sway over Lourdes and that magnetism you talked about worked with her too. And she speaks about that as well. Yeah, and and she had a lot of friends, and I know them, uh, also that she worked with as as a prosecutor, and who would rescue her. Another friend of hers, Brad Roach, talked about how they had an argument that got violent, and not that she was beaten up or anything, but it was very stressful. So he went to go rescue her, and then Brad Schwartz calls her while he's rescuing Lourdes, and she goes back to him. Yeah, And she had a lot of friendships with other people that became broken because they could see this this toxic relationship that she just wanted to continue with until it finally became just too broken for her to stand anymore. So they did break up. And Brad also solicited Lourdes to have her ex-husband, who was somewhat marginally criminal, right? He was, well, yeah. he was not marginally criminal. He was not marginally <laughs> criminal. I was being kind. Yes. Uh, <laughs> to put a hit out on yes. Brian. Yes, Danny Lopez. That was an interesting kind of pairing when you had Lourdes Lopez, who rose up to become the first in her family to get a college degree. And then she went on to become a lawyer. But yet she marries Danny Lopez, who is a criminal. And Brad was fascinated. One of the things he liked about being with Lourdes is that she was a prosecutor and she could tell him, she could feed that Sopranos fandom of his with real life criminals. There was uh, some talk that one of the first things that uh, Brad did was talk to Danny Lopez and perhaps, nobody can prove it, perhaps ask Danny Lopez to kill Brian Stidham. Now, what happens to Danny Lopez, though? Well, Danny goes back to Nebraska to see family. And while he's in Nebraska, he gets killed by the cops. <laughs> so um, so, uh, we'll, so nev- he's, we'll never know what happened. No, there was, however, a little clipping in his wallet 
of Brian's denim. It was like a little cutout, not a newspaper clipping, but maybe from a program or something like that. And so prosecutors found that very interesting. But nothing happened because Danny Lopez was killed. Whatever happened between Brad Schwartz and Danny Lopez, we'll never know. Lopez may have just taken his money and yeah. like, often is the case and run. What recourse do you have? Is there proof that Schwartz gave Danny Lopez money? No. 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 Okay. We uh, don't know for sure. And that's what prosecutors will tell you that in conspiracy cases, you never or rarely see the actual handoff of money. It's mostly just, oh, money was taken out of this account and all of a sudden somebody has that amount. And that becomes relevant a little bit later right. on yes. as well. But so take us to that night, October 5th, 2004. There were a number of carjackings that had happened when they first find him and his white Lexus is gone. This is Brian Stidham. First, they think it's a carjacking. The police think it might be a carjacking. Yes, absolutely. And this actually occurred in the middle of a very violent summer in Tucson. We have a lot of crime connected to the border. We're about 90 minutes from the Mexico border. And there had been a rash of carjackings. There was one guy in the neighborhood where Brian was killed who actually was a knife-wielding carjacker and loved to flash his his, uh, knife and steal the cars. And so it it was a logical step for the police. They find that night, Brian had actually been staying late at the office. Normally he would leave before the office staff, but that night he was teaching University of Arizona medical students. He had a little uh, workshop there. So he ordered pizza for the students and soda. And it was you know, 7.26 p.m. when he set the alarm. And that's the last we know that Brian did while he was alive. When he, so, he, set, he set the security alarm right. on his office, for, yeah. in his office, basically. Right. And it was a dark night. It was a dark parking lot. Very few cars there. And then around 10, 10.30, that's when his body is found. Someone else in the complex who was coming back to retrieve her engagement ring that she left at work. And so so they find this man lying face up in the parking lot with wounds. They didn't know at the time if they were stab or bullet wounds, but many wounds. They saw his car registration and his personal papers out there, so they knew who he was, but no car. And around midnight... And, and no phone. No car, no phone, yep. yes. Around midnight, after they've been processing the scene for a while, they decided to check on his residence because perhaps there's another victim. So they send a couple of deputies out to Brian's home and it's all dark, all quiet. They pound on the door, no response. They were able to open the door. It had a chain on it. So the door wasn't locked, but it had one of those chain locks. And they shouted into the home, Pima County Sheriff's Department, and no response. And they look around the house and it turns out there's an entry. They can gain entry through the garage. So they enter the house and it's all dark, very quiet. And they see double doors that they assume is the master bedroom. And they open the double doors. You know, they have the flashlights and everything. And they announce themselves, Pima County Sheriff's Department. A woman is in the bed and alone sleeping, and she sits up and she says, how is my husband killed? 
This is very bizarre to me. This me this this whole part. Her whole reaction was off. She yeah. says, "Has my husband been shot?" Yeah. Right? Yes. Or was my husband shot? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And they noticed in the police reports that I read and used in my book, they noticed that she never looked on the side of the bed where her husband should have been. They figured it was Daphne Stidham, the wife, and they noticed what appeared to be Brian's will on her nightstand. So yeah, they were so immediately yeah. suspicious. And she kept asking them, how was my husband killed? And they said, ma'am, we haven't told you why we're here yet. And wow. then finally, they do tell her that he was found deceased. And they ask her, why do you keep saying he was killed? And she said, well, he was 37 at the time. You know, 37-year-olds don't just drop dead. Although he did have a heart condition. But they just thought it was very curious that she used the word killed. When, right. when, first of all, they hadn't told her why they were there. And then when they said her husband had died, that he was killed. Right. Not and, a car accident or. Right. 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 So then, which might be your first thought. What's happening? Yeah. You know, you have cops yeah. in your bedroom. Yeah. yeah. And it turns out the, the, the papers beside her were estate papers. She and her husband had been arranging their estate. Her homework was to go through the paperwork and sign where she needed to and everything like that. And she hadn't done that yet. They asked her where she had been that day. They asked her what clothes she was wearing, but they never checked her schedule. They never checked her clothing. And every deputy that came to the house that day just thought she was a suspect, that there was something fishy about what she was saying. Yes. And one of the curious things is throughout the day, she had been calling Brian. She had taken the children to the office to see Brian. Right. And she would have known, of course, that Brian would have been staying late and not come home. She even told me in an interview that he would put off his own supper when he came home because he wanted to play with the kids before they had to go to bed. They had two young children. But she would have known, of course, he wasn't going to be home. But apparently the session wrapped up around by 7.30. He should have been home at least by 8. Even though she called him throughout the day, when he wasn't home at 8, she didn't call him. 9, she didn't call him. Interesting. 10, she, she took some medications that are very strong and went to bed without calling him. And she kept saying, I, I should have called him. I should have called him. But she never did. So that was kind of curious as well. And also one of the things to say, well, she wasn't expecting him home maybe. We'll never know that either. And so when did the police decide this isn't a carjacking? This is something more sinister or foul play. Yeah. That very first night, Daphne did say, you know, when they said, do you know anyone who would want to harm your husband? She said, yes, Brad Schwartz. And so from that night on, they were looking at Brad Schwartz and they were looking into him. They never talked to him, but they were looking into it. And it wasn't for several days that they actually found Brian's car because nobody knew, was it a carjacking? Tucson was up in arms about this. Everyone was nervous. I mean, if a well-liked doctor can be killed for a Lexus, it's not even, you know, a fancy schmanz. It's a Lexus, but right. not like it's a Porsche or anything. And if that can happen to him, you know, could it happen to me? It was it was a very, very tough time in, in Tucson. And eventually they found Brian's car parked in an apartment complex about, I think, 10 miles away. So not too far away. 
And they did this by pinging the cell phone that was still in the car, right? Yes. I think maybe the cell phone died at one point because it hadn't been plugged in. But they did do that. And also they had gotten reports from the apartment complex. So everything came together and they found the car parked in this apartment complex. And they could tell looking in the car before they even opened it, because of course they wanted to do things properly, they could tell that there was some blood in the car. So they took the car to be processed, and they did find that there was a blood spatter inside the driver's side door and on the dashboard. So, so in other words, it's from what I understand, it was Brian Stidham opening the door to get into his car, and that's when he was attacked. That's what they eventually um, they surmised, that he had walked to his car, opened the car door, and was standing there. He hadn't gotten in the car. Once they had the car and they could piece together what they found at the scene, and apparently, and and Brian was stabbed about a dozen times, no defensive wounds. He didn't have any defensive wounds, anything, and prosecutors said it was a blitz attack. He didn't have time, but still kind of curious how Brian would just let someone come up to him like that, not dive into the car or run to the office. I was thinking about this too, though. He's got presumably this paperwork in his hand and he's got a piece of pizza in the other hand, right? I mean, it may be just sort of, he's got his hands occupied in some ways. Right, and and he was shocked. You know, but I don't know if it was in his hands. I had seen on a forensics files that he had put the piece of pizza on the car and that his hands are occupied, in other words. That might be part of the reason why there aren't defensive wounds. Yeah, so um, again, we'll never know. From the placement of the car, which it was also going on whether this was a carjacking or not, because that does happen a lot in Tucson because we're so near the border. Cars get stolen, they get driven across the border, they get resold or pieced apart, whatever they do. But just finding the car parked in that lot, of course, gave them something to wonder about who drove it there and and who would have left it there. The more they looked into it, the more that they found out what Brad Schwartz was doing that night. And that night, Brad had a date with a woman from Phoenix that he had met online. He did a lot of online dating. He, I, this just made me laugh. I mean, no, I shouldn't laugh. It's just to think that, she, you know, you're on a, one of your early dates with somebody and what happens. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> the worst Tinder date I mean, ever. You, you, you can know. tell she, she gets uncomfortable pretty quickly and uh, you, if you can go on and yeah. tell about this. <laughs> yeah. And she had, she had come down from Phoenix. She had, uh, went, she had gone to Brad's office And and this is Lisa Goldberg, is that Lisa Goldberg, yes. And while she was at Brad's office, there was a patient there who she saw, didn't really interact with. She went to Brad's apartment to get freshened up before their date. And he came home. They went out to a a restaurant. And while they're having dinner, uh, Brad gets a phone call. And Lisa learns this, this guy that she had seen at his office and Brad sends a taxi for this other man to bring him to the restaurant where they were eating. And the bond that, that she is given between them is that they met in rehab. So it surprises her that this new guy sits down with them and orders a beer. Although I've known a lot of people in rehab that never stop. Yeah, it doesn't surprise <laughs> me. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out that Brad wants to get this guy a hotel room, which she thinks is a little odd, but... Hey, so they all... What is this guy's name? He was going by Bruce. 
Bigger is his life. Bruce, Bruce Bigger. Bigger. Yeah. Yes. And he's in Scrubs when he comes to the restaurant. Is that correct? Not not when he came to the restaurant. Okay. No. Okay. Sorry. But Sorry. while they're driving around and Brad's looking for a hotel room for him, he says, how'd those Scrubs work for you? Right. And so Lisa thought that was an odd question. And she wasn't quite sure what Bruce did either. He, she had seen him at the the practice, but didn't know patients. Maybe he's a doctor too. She didn't know. So eventually Brad finds a hotel room for him and, and they go back to Brad's place. And another curious thing that she had seen when Bruce was at the office was he had a bicycle and she thought she saw a big knife on his bicycle on the handlebars. And, and it turns out Brad Schwartz actually told me, he said that it was actually a barbecue set. Apparently, Bruce was a great barbecuer. <laughs> and wow. his skills were always welcome wherever he was crashing. So he always kept his barbecue tools strapped onto his bicycle. Well, no, it, <laughs> don't, don't you? I mean, I definitely put my barbecue I mean, kit strapped to my... I've like, seen a picture of this man. He doesn't look like a bicycle rider. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, but let, you're right. Sorry, the, Sarah, the, I interrupted you. Not at all. Not the at visual all. is killing me because he does yeah. not look the least bit athletic. I mean, well, not, yeah, and I think it was more of a matter of mode of transportation, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But can you describe Bruce Bigger at all? I mean, what was his situation in life at this yeah. time? Bruce is a very interesting character. He gets pulled into this, and he is an unlikely person to get pulled into this kind of stratosphere with two doctors in Tucson, even. He's from Indiana, northern Indiana, and his mom was a cop. Bruce was a very, very likable guy. When I was, you know, looking into who he was, people were saying, yeah, it was hard not to like him. He was a, a nice guy. And he went to Ball State University and he liked the party scene and everything like that. But then he was in a bad car crash. His face got bashed in. If you see his picture, it looks like maybe he's been in a lot of fights. Yeah. Which he had very little, really no criminal history, especially violent criminal history. If it was violent, it was usually because Bruce was getting beaten up. Right. And that's actually how he met Brad. But eventually, when uh, Bruce was in this car crash, just like Brad Schwartz, he started self-medicating. And his drug of choice was alcohol and some illicit drugs. His criminal history was mostly DUI, things like that, kind of drug offenses. And he actually was on probation in Indiana when he just he decided he wanted to go to Arizona, where his best friend lived. So he came out west, although we never could track down this best friend, whatever, if that was truly the case. So he ends up in Tucson, and he's just kind of bumming around. He's kind of fallen on hard times, so. Yeah, although his mother said that, you know, he had money because he got a settlement from this car crash. So he did have money, and so it wasn't like he was destitute, but he wasn't looking for a job. He wasn't doing anything like that. And he just started hanging out with a lot of the people who were doing the same things as he was, drinking and drugging and things like that. One day he's at a convenience store and there's a ruckus that he's involved in and he gets punched. He gets beaten up. And that's when he was actually referred to Brad Schwartz because he had some eye damage. Uh, interesting. Uh, so the cops, you know, as they're tracing... Brad's steps that night because they were looking into what Brad was doing because Daphne had said he'd wanted Brian killed. 
that's when they talk to Lisa Goldberg. They find out about this night where he goes and arranges to have Bruce brought to them, puts Bruce up for the night. And so and they're still keeping an eye on him. And they come to find out that a few days after the murder, Brad Schwartz withdraws $10,000 from his bank account. And Schwartz actually told me, he said, I did that all the time. 10000 to me is nothing. He was making millions. And he was renovating his office. So he goes, it wasn't unusual for him to take something like that up. Does he have evidence backing that up, though? No, there was no evidence introduced mm. that said that. Well, so, he had a lot I, of attempted hits, yes. so you have to take out. <laughs> That's true. I mean, just like it's good to have Vicodin around. Hey, it's good to have 10,000 around. That's in case right, you, definitely. That's right. you never know when you're going to meet a hit man or woman that <laughs> you might need to oh, employ. So shortly after Brad Schwartz takes the money out and he is seen going to Bruce Bigger's hotel, again, as a conspiracy goes, you really don't ever see that transaction. It's only on TV. And then Bruce is partying with some friends of his and they see a big wad of cash on him. And he says, let's go to Las Vegas. I'll treat you guys. Mm. So that, you know, they were like, hey, yeah, sure. No, why not? And so that's where the kind of, you know, they're putting the puzzle together between Brad Schwartz and Bruce Bigger that eventually leads to their arrests. And as I said earlier, that's when I came into the case to cover all of the court hearings. And it's a high profile crime to begin with. So we knew we were going to be there for everything. What was compelling, too, is that there was a convenience store that was right near the medical complex. And yes. there were calls from that payphone. We don't know who made those calls to Brad Schwartz's cell phone. Right. And also, right, a clerk that identified Bruce as coming into that convenience store. Yes. Right. And, and there were several people who testified that they had seen a man that they couldn't definitively say was Bruce Bigger, but a man wearing scrubs hanging out in the parking lot that afternoon at the medical complex. Although interestingly enough, there were a lot of people who said that they saw this man wandering around or acting suspicious. The most prominent thing about Bruce Bigger that you notice is his bashed in nose. Mm. Nobody, nobody said, the first thing, if I saw him and I was describing him to a sketch artist or whatever, I'd say, okay, he had this bashed in nose. Yes. Also, when Bruce was first arrested and he was strung out, he, you know, he was doing his drinking and drugging like crazy. His mugshot makes him look extremely bad. And he shows up in court for one of his first hearings. And of course, he's been in jail. He's actually had three meals a day, no drugs. And he, he did not look as menacing as his mugshot. And he even turned to the reporters and, and he said that he would do anything to get rid of that mugshot. <laughs> make him look good. So this isn't obviously a very sophisticated plan they put together. It doesn't take the police no. very long to figure this one. This is always an amazing it's, thing to me. It, obviously, education does not prepare you to be a criminal because they figure this out and, and make arrests fairly shortly. Yeah, yes. we've had a number of really brilliant doctors who are total doofuses at planning crimes. The worst. You know, yeah, the worst. You know. There's arrests made, so you, you can go yes. ahead. <laughs> the thing that always um, intrigued me, though, is they never investigated Daphne Stidham. Yeah, that fascinates me because in any other, Sarah and I look at a lot of cases, and usually that alone almost would be enough. And they would exhaustively 
investigate the spouse. Yeah. It's interesting and, that that didn't, didn't happen here. No. And eventually we were at court one day and the lead detective came up to me and she said, you still don't believe Schwartz didn't do this, right? And I said, I'm not saying he did or didn't. I mean, I truly, when I'm covering a story like that, I just want to tell a story. Right. I'm not the judge. I'm not the jury. I'm not the lawyers. I'm not defending anyone. I'm not prosecuting anyone. But I said, it's not that I think he's innocent, but why didn't you investigate Daphne Stidham? And her response was, oh, well, if you knew Daphne, you knew she couldn't do this. Yeah, I wonder because, you know, Daphne is so, she's kind of perfect looking and, and articulate. And I can see how you could almost be fooled by that. I mean, I'm not saying she had anything to do with it, but yeah. she would definitely, you know, she's very wholesome and beautiful look that they would just say, oh, she could have nothing to do with this. Right. Uh, Schwartz's attorney tried very, very hard to get the Daphne evidence introduced into trial. And on top of that being that stabbing is a very personal way to attack someone. Bruce Bigger had access to a gun, and he did, that he could have easily borrowed or, you know, gotten from, if not that one source, another source. Was the plan really, Brad said to Bruce, go hang out in his parking lot wear scrubs and hang out in his parking lot in the daylight. He'll be out. If, if Brian usually left at 4.30, it would still be daylight. It was off a very busy street, even though the parking lot is not obvious from the street. There's still a lot of traffic there, especially at 4.30. There was no evidence that showed that either Brad or Brian, or Brad or Bruce, there's <laughs> so many Bs, either one of them knew that Brian would be there at 7.30 at night. Can I just ask you a question, too? When they process the car and they find the blood spatter, they find what's known as a partial DNA match, correct, yes. to, to Bruce. I looked into partial DNA. Can you kind of explain to our listeners what a partial DNA profile is? Yes, it's, it's a, a profile where, Unlike the movies and TV where they find any DNA, it seems like, and they can pinpoint it to any person anywhere. If you don't have the whole DNA, you can narrow it down to what kind of person that was. And you can extrapolate to say, okay, it can be one in seven people because it's so rare, this strand. It can be one in 100,000 people. It can be one in 10 billion people. And at the time, they found this DNA that was not, definitely not Brian Stidham's. And when they got Bruce Bigger's DNA sample, at first the prosecutor said, and it, and it was very striking in court when it came out, that, again, don't quote me on exact numbers. It's in the book. <laughs> I don't retain exact numbers very well. Say it's one in 7,000 people, one in 10,000 people. Bruce Bigger is included in that group of people. It's so interesting. So, you think of DNA as being so black and white. It's yes. A, a yes or no. I found this really fascinating, this idea that there's only a partial match. I guess there's so little that some of the alleles are not there enough to make a full identification. It's fascinating. Yeah. And also, as I said, the, the idea that uh, everything is solved by DNA. Right. So when the evidence is first brought up, it's like, how could this not be Bruce Bigger in a town the size of Tucson? It's not definitively Bruce Bigger. So then it turns out that it isn't one in 7,000 or 10,000. It's one in 10 million people. Oh. Even though he is still included, a, there's a lot of other people who could be as well. 
So even though there was DNA evidence in this case, it, it wasn't definitive at all. It, it persuaded some people, but it wasn't anything that you could just say, there's no way it couldn't be Bruce Bigger. So it's a circumstantial case. Yes. And Brad's defense was that if Bruce Bigger didn't do it, he didn't do it because they don't have anyone else there. And curiously enough, after a switch in strategies, Bruce's attorney said that Brad Schwartz actually killed Brian Stidham. So it wasn't Bruce. So that was kind of weird. Yeah, but he was completely alibied because of his dinner at the Thai restaurant with Lisa. Right. Exactly. It would actually almost make more sense because of the rage. But yeah, he was alibied. Right. right. Yeah. And they never found the murder weapon. Interestingly enough, one of the interesting points was uh, they took the jury to see the parking lot where Brian was killed. And they had the spot marked where his body was found, where the car had been parked, because Brian always parked in a, the same place. And they took them at night so they could see what it was like at night. Somebody asked, one of the jurors had asked, because juries can ask questions here in Arizona. So they asked where they had searched for the murder weapon. And they searched in the dumpster where they found the pizza box that Brian had ordered and things like that. There was a a wash behind the complex. They looked in there for the murder weapon. And then one of the jurors said, did you check the roof? Oh, my God. Because what if the the killer just threw the knife up on the roof? Because it's one of these, like, one-story... Yeah. It's not a high building or anything. And they had not checked the roof. That is so funny. Wow. And they said, well, can't you do it now? And they said it would be useless now. (laughs) It's a couple years later. Imagine (laughs) if they did find it up there, though. Yeah. Yeah, I I always kind of wondered if, you know, you see those TV shows where the the jurors go and they investigate the crime themselves. (laughs) She's probably an online sleuth now. Yeah, exactly. We're at the trial and they're tried separately? Yes. And who's tried first? Brad Schwartz is tried first, and he's charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. It was very, very interesting. His parents flew in from New York, and they were there every day of the trial. Daphne Stidham moved back to Texas shortly after. They had a memorial for Brian Stidham after he died, and then she packed the kids up and moved back to Texas. She did not attend the trial. It was Interesting, because one day Brad Schwartz's mother came to the court and she had baked him something that he really liked, like banana bread or something like that. I don't remember what it was. And she wanted to give it to him. And the lawyers and the the courtroom officials were like, no, no, you can't do that. (laughs) But it was just, you know, that just these people are just not into the situation where one of their own is being tried for murder, you know. Just right, right. Like she's visiting, like she's coming to the office with treats. Yeah, not yeah. Being, being tried for his life, basically. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. And then, you know, and we finally get to see Brad Schwartz day after day, this kind of smallish man, kind of nerdy looking, red hair and uh, glasses and everything like that. And it's just, you know, you sit there and you wonder, it's like, why? At the time of Brian's murder... Brad Schwartz was two months away from getting his full medical license back. And he had rebuilt his business. And they were making ever. lots of money, you know, pulling it in. He was happy. He he did things like there's the Doctors Without Borders project where, where the doctors would go into Mexico and South America and everything right. like that and help people. And he did that. You know, he volunteered. He loved doing that. There was in one village where he went 
to help people, the women of the village had made him this fantastic woven mural. <laughs> Once that, again, Schwartz had charms. He must be <laughs> well, it seems to me this is just such an example. And Sarah read that quote in the beginning. It's just Sarah and I were discussing this, you know, resentment's the poison you pour for someone else and you drink. This this anger and rage and resentment just, I mean, it's illogical. You know, it just right. seems to completely consume him where he was, you know, allegedly willing to risk everything to exact this revenge, which really didn't matter to anyone but him. It's yes. just what anger yeah. and rage can do to you. Yeah, and resentment and yeah. jealousy and you got over on me, so I'm going to... Right, betrayal and it's right. festering and he's just not going to let it go and move on with this. You know, we're all going, well, move on with your life and you're making millions of dollars, but mm -hmm. it, it's not logical. No. Let's talk about what happened in the trial and the outcome. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it really came as no surprise, but Brad Schwartz was convicted of conspiracy to commit first degree murder. And following his trial, then Bruce Bigger went on trial. He was convicted of first degree murder and conspiracy to commit first degree murder. And both of them given life sentences that it wasn't a death penalty trial. Afterwards, we talked to the juries and, and to them, them, it was very cut and dried that they did, as the prosecutor, Sylvia Lafferty said, connect the dots between Brad's actions and Bruce's actions that led to Brian's death. So they were both convicted and, and sentenced. And interestingly, while they were uh, in, in jail, remember I said about how Bruce got beaten up? Well, Bruce got beaten up in prison and Brad Schwartz did too. And he was beaten so severely, he still had that cocky attitude. And inmates don't like that. <laughs> So, I, I had read that, and he is actually his eye sockets were damaged. Yeah, so and he, he got eye damage, which, you know, here he was, a talented eye surgeon. He had already gotten a settlement from his shoulder, from the insurance, because it had limited his abilities as a surgeon. And there was a lot of court stuff with Schwartz and his ex-wife and the court, because the county wanted some of that money to pay back the cost of putting him on trial and restitution. And then he, he got another settlement for his eye injury as well. Wow. Even though he was no longer able to practice. But both of them protesting their innocence. I never spoke to Brad Schwartz, but I talked him and his lawyer into letting me write down some questions. And so we had a little bit of a correspondence and that attitude of his came through in the correspondence when I was saying, I'm innocent. I am innocent. I didn't do this. And I said, why should we believe you? You broke a sacred vow to your wife because you were lying to her and cheating on her. So you lied to the person closest to you. Who are we? Why wouldn't you lie to us? How, why should I believe you? And he did have some interesting things to say about some of the evidence. Like I said, the barbecue set, the intention from the very beginning for his lawyer was to put Brad Schwartz on the stand. And he was convinced that had Brad Schwartz been able to testify, he could have explained a lot of these things that didn't make sense to the rest of us. And the only problem was he hated the prosecutor, hated her. And they were just, you could tell the tension between them. Between, and, uh, between who? The attorney right, and, no, or, or Schwartz Brad and Lafferty? Right, right. His attorney and the prosecutor were friends. But uh, Brad Schwartz and Sylvia Lafferty just 
you know, you could, each other. You could yeah. see him seething at her. And well, he's very good at resentment. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, I know. she's probably very glad he's walked away. <laughs> yeah, she better watch out. Yeah, I don't think she's afraid. No, she seems tough. <laughs> yeah. So, but he didn't end up testifying because someone on his defense team recognized that had he gone on the stand, he wouldn't have been able to hide the loathing he had for the prosecutor. Wow. And that rage would come out. And the jurors would see that no, that no matter what he said, how much he charmed himself to the jury with his defense attorney, once the prosecutor came on and gave him tough questions, he would just explode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so he never did testify. Bruce Bigger didn't testify. I spoke to his mom during the trial, Bruce Bigger's mom, the cop, and she said, you know, I hope he didn't do this. I really hope he didn't do this. I don't think he did this, but if he did, he's got to pay. Hmm. Talk to us also what happened to Lourdes Lopez as well as a result. She got very much dragged into this. And yes, there was a subsequent lawsuit from Daphne Stidham as well. So can you talk a little bit about the fallout from it? Yeah, there was a bunch of lawsuits. What happened directly with Lourdes Lopez is she was a prosecutor at the county attorney's office, and she was asked to resign. She wasn't fired, really. She was asked to resign, so she did. And this was when the DEA case was going on, because she had not told her superiors. The DEA told her, you've got to tell the prosecutor's office that you're being prosecuted. And she didn't. And when it became obvious that she was involved, she was asked to resign. And afterwards, she still maintained contact with a bunch of her friends in that office. And one of her friends, Brad Roach, threw a charity Halloween party that was very popular amongst the legal people, you know, defense attorneys and prosecutors, a bunch of people. And Brad was unsure whether he should invite Lourdes because she was persona non grata. This is and Brad Roach. The Brad, Brad Roach. Yeah, Brad yeah. Roach. Yes. He told his superior, hey, I invited Lourdes to my, and his superior said, uninvite her. That became this whole mess between all of these attorneys in the prosecutor's office who were friends with Lourdes, and they were all fired. They protested their firings, and um, and then lawsuits came in, Daphne suing the county for these prosecutors, several of whom had heard Brad say, I want to kill Brian Stidham, and did nothing. The medical complex, the owners, the owner of the complex was the parents of one of the prosecutors who Lourdes knew. They got sued because they had a dark parking lot. A whole bunch. And then, of course, the thing with Brad's money, you know, all these things were coming up. And Daphne had this civil suit against these attorneys that during the civil suit, a lot of the attorneys were trying to prove that Brian Stidham was having an affair at the time of his death. And they did find a computer call between Brian and a woman that indicated that they were involved with each other. Hmm. But that's all they could find. And they were kind of chomping at the bit to take this to trial because then this information about Daphne Stidham might come up. And if Daphne Stidham killed Brian Stidham, they had no involvement. They weren't to blame for Brad Schwartz saying anything and not reporting it because Brad Schwartz didn't do it. It's just interesting because it definitely sets up some reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, you would think so. As it turns out, you know, everybody settled. All the lawsuits were settled. None of them went to trial. So this evidence of an affair was never introduced into court. And the judge had also precluded the defense teams from what Daphne Stidham did, any possible involvement that she had. They couldn't introduce that, you know, which a lot of times, as you guys know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners, sometimes it's not what's introduced in the trial that turns the case. It's what's not introduced. It's what's discluded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wrote the book and absolutely loved writing it. It was just so freeing to get out of that newspaper article because there's only so much that you can report. And and we couldn't report any of the Daphne stuff because the editor said it's not in the trial, so you can't report on it. So there's a lot of stuff that I had known during the trials that I couldn't report on. A lot of things that I found out afterwards. And uh, my book came out and one of my first book signings here in Tucson, first the judge showed up. Yes! <laughs> wow. And uh, and then the prosecutor Sylvia Lafferty showed up, and she and I did not get along very well either. But she was there. She bought ten books. Wow. <laughs> she had me sign them to various people that she gave as presents. So wow. So apparently she she wasn't you know against that. And we found out afterwards there was actually one of the jurors there as well. Wow. And um, so I was talking, and I was you know talking about Daphne. And uh, telling people about how, you know, this was never introduced, this evidence here. And isn't this interesting? And allegedly, Brian Stidham was having an affair at the time. And Sylvia Lafferty, the prosecutor, confirmed it right there. They knew he was having an affair. Wow. And it was the woman in that video call, which I don't want to name her. She's she's not part of this, really. So isn't that interesting that Brian was having an affair? And the defense never brought it up. Never brought, they they couldn't prove it. They had no proof at the time, but prosecutors knew it. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. And that would all seem to indicate too, that this kind of, why wasn't Daphne investigated? Right. Because if he was having an affair, she maybe could have. She had motive, right. Yeah. She has the oldest motive in the world, but. It seems to me like we come to this time and time again in our cases, but they went to the Ivy League, but they're a doctor, but they look so good on paper. They couldn't possibly. And we find again and again and again that people are not sort of properly investigated because they look so good on paper. And I think- it couldn't couldn't possibly, he's a doctor. What do you mean? He's got a great resume. None of us are immune to the human frailty of resentment, of consuming jealousy, of greed, lust. I'm not saying I think Daphne had anything to do with it, but I think yeah. it definitely creates reasonable doubt. If I was on the jury, I right, think that that definitely, yeah. it muddies the water. So let's kind of catch up where everyone is now. And they're in prison, Brad and... They're still in prison appealing their cases. They have not exhausted yet their appeals. The last I looked, I think Bruce Bigger was representing himself. So uh, so he's uh, he's got little chance of getting anything through, but... Are they both incarcerated in Arizona? Yes, they're both in, in prison in Arizona. Interestingly, Brad Schwartz's wife... Well, his only wife, because they they were divorced and he never remarried. But Joan, lovely person. 
just lovely person. And she was involved a lot in the trials and the civil cases, testifying about their marriage and also their finances and her divorce settlement, things like that. Is she supportive of Brad? In a way, she was. When she went to testify, the first time that she walked into the courtroom to testify, and she actually looked over, smiled, and said hi to Brad. They exchanged this little pleasantry. And she always maintained, of course, he's the father of her children. Mm -hmm. And she visited him regularly in prison. Mm. I'm sure she's probably the only person who did. I don't know. Maybe he's gotten groupies or something. And uh, she sadly died last year. Up until the day she died, she didn't deny that he did or didn't do what he was accused of. But she said, he's the father of my children. And based on me, his mother once told me during the court, she goes, you know, the divorce, it was all Brad, not Joan. They loved Joan. You know, they had a great relationship with her and everything. She goes, but I thought that was funny. It's like, (laughs) yeah, you're, you're. Definitely not helping your son any. Multiple affairs for any marriage. And Lourdes Lopez uh, actually got disbarred. She was working as a defense attorney after she got let go from the county attorney's office. And she got disbarred. And the presumption is that she didn't get disbarred right away. After the DEA, after this case came up and, and, you know, she testified and everything. But she went on a lot of TV shows. And the rumor was that she went on one too many TV shows and the state bar had enough with her. So she actually got disbarred. If she wants to get her license back, she could. She could petition to get it back, but she hasn't. She always liked working with the local tribes here. So the last I heard, she was working with the tribe. Um, She can be a paralegal. She can't be an attorney, but she can be a paralegal and act as an advisor in that capacity. So last I heard, she hasn't come to any of my book signings. Um, She's actually a very nice person, and she's actually smart. I mean, to get where she got. I would imagine she'd have to be, yeah. She's not dumb. She makes terrible choices in men, apparently. But she's not a bad person. And that's like all of these people who came together, very unlikely murder victim, very unlikely murder hitman, very unlikely murder orderer, and Lourdes Lopez wrapped up in it, and it's just kind of bizarre. It's an incredible case, AJ, and you do such a good job in your book. I just tore through it. I mean, it is really, you just lay it out so well. I listen to it on Audible, actually, sometimes. Ah. I recommend the book, your book, Toxic Rage. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, we encourage all our listeners because you can get really much deeper into the case than what we're talking about here. You get yep. really can deep dive on it. Really yeah. fascinating case. And each person is fascinating. It, absolutely. The cast of characters, it's like you just can't make this bleep up. And we w- could talk to you for much longer, but we will not take up any more of your time because I know you want to go and enjoy that Tucson sunshine <laughs> and I'm still I'm still bitter about it, AJ. I don't know. I, I think I have to put my flip-flops on before I go outside. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have our snow boots on here. <laughs> but this was such a pleasure and, and we uh, really encourage everybody to get the book. Absolutely. Um, and we'll, we'll post it. We'll promote it. It's on and, our website and yep. we have the, the links available, but definitely it's going to be a great, and, and great can, story to listen to over the holidays. And just briefly, are you working on anything right now? Can you whet our appetite for a new project or what's your, can you talk about it, AJ, or no? I can talk a little bit about it because the, the whole intention was because I love writing and this 
book form of writing. And as you said, the characters, I could, because I knew I'd have to introduce these people to people who don't know them, didn't see them, and treated them very much like characters. Even Tucson, to me, is a character in the book. I really loved it. And there's another case that um, I've been talking to my agent about. It was a very high-profile case, and I, I had done some work on it over the years. It was a cold case. And I tried to get info out of you. I used, my, <laughs> I used all my PI skills, and AJ was like, nah, we won't make you talk about it, but we will be waiting on <laughs> on Amazon to get this book. Yes, so. yes. Uh, well, you, guys, you can have the scoop. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. I don't want to jinx it. It's a really good story, and I just don't want to jinx it. Sure. Oh, I, uh, I my, it. my agent is really psyched about it. She goes, this could be bigger than Toxic Rage. And wow. so you guys will be the first to know. Okay, awesome. okay. we will. Okay. You circle back to us when you're ready to talk about it, because yeah. you'll be the Tucson chapter. Yeah. Of, uh, okay. I, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there's any Ivy Leaguers in that bunch, though, but maybe there is. All right. Well, yeah. AJ, what a pleasure. What a pleasure. Totally Thanks fun. again. Thank you so much. Thank I really enjoyed it. Again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Joe, how was that? that? Did AJ take you on a wild ride to Tucson? Well, I know the story and I've seen the episode of Forensic Files. And as soon as you said that, I mean, I perked up even more. Yeah. I mean, to have heard that story and to know it and to hear it like this, AJ, was amazing. And you guys were awesome. The questions were just right on point. It was great. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, Me you too. tell a great story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Next, we got to make it a movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> there aren't even any podcasts on this story. A very few. I couldn't find much out there on this story, which is surprising because it's really a great story. I, I mean, I've been on a bunch of different shows about it, and people don't. It, it's just because you can't make it up. You can't right. make it up. Exactly. There's a lot of different angles to approach it from. I mean, your guy's angle is just really great i uh, never even thought about that but yeah so many ways to look at it and you can't forget these people and, and poor brian i mean i know yeah yeah such a shame. yeah absolutely aj thanks a million thanks. bye bye thank you so bye. much